If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello, and welcome to Life of the Week where leading historians delve into the lives of some of history's most intriguing and significant figures. From ancient Egyptian pharaohs and medieval warriors to daring 20th century spies. Having run away from a life of slavery as a young man, Frederick Douglass went on to forge his own remarkable path as an abolitionist orator, writer and statesman. In today's Life of the Week episode, Claire Elliott guides Paul Bloomfield through Douglas's story and explains how he came to play such a significant role in the fight for rights in the 19th century United States and beyond. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Claire Elliott, Assistant Professor at Northumbria University, to discuss the life of Frederick Douglass. Douglas was one of the most influential abolitionist writers, publishers and orators of the 19th century. Being the most photographed American man of that era, he's also arguably the most recognisable today. Born into slavery, he escaped and used his freedom to lead the fight against slavery. Claire, welcome. To start, can you tell us briefly who was Frederick Douglas? When and where was he born and what was he called at birth and what do we know about his family and early life? Yeah, we're really lucky to have a lot of information about Douglas's life. And this is quite unusual for early black writers because naturally they didn't leave behind a great deal of information and they often didn't know a great deal about their own early biography. So we're fortunate with Douglas. Here is a, an early black writer who gives us two autobiographies. We have Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass and My Bondage and My Freedom, two autobiographies separated by 10 years. If listeners are interested in looking into Douglass's early life a little bit more, it's narrative that provides us with many of the early details about his beginnings. We know from that autobiography that Douglass was born in Talbot County in Maryland and he thinks he's born in 1818. There's always a question mark over the birth of enslaved people. They have to really try to piece together parts of their beginnings like a jigsaw. 
And Douglas has this lovely way of doing that where he mentions in narrative that he overhears people talking about something to do with what age he would have been at a certain date. And he, he backtracks and he traces that to 18, 17 or 18. If you're born in Talbot County, Maryland in 1818 and you're African-American, you're likely born into slavery. So we know that much about his beginning. I think too, Paul, you were interested in knowing about his name. Douglas is not Frederick Douglas at birth. He is Frederick Bailey, Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. He takes his mother's name, who is Harriet Bailey. And we don't have a Frederick Douglas until his escape. He takes that name Douglas, I suppose, to change identity, really, when he finds himself an escaped slave in 1838. It's every literary scholar's delight to learn that Douglas takes his name from a poem. He actually reads Walter Scott's poem, The Lady of the Lake. And in that poem, we have a character called James Douglas, and he's a rival to King James V. We don't really need to go into that in too much detail today, but it's lovely to know that Douglas reads that poem and he takes James Douglas's name. So it's interesting you mention, of course, that he's reading there. It would have been unusual at that time for enslaved people to be taught to read. How did Douglas come to learn? Yeah, Douglas's literacy is a, a really important, a powerful aspect that really shapes abolition and the end of slavery. It's thanks to Douglas's literacy that we, we get really to 1865. Douglas talks a lot in his autobiographies about the luck of the draw so to speak, in terms of where one ends up and under whose authority one has to serve. Douglas talks about kind masters, in scare quotes, and cruel masters. He ends up for a short time being with Sophia Auld and her husband Hugh Auld. And Sophia Auld really is a bit of both. She is kind and later very cruel. She teaches him to read in his early life. And that's a remarkable detail. In many states in the US at this moment, it was illegal to teach enslaved people to read. So she's actually breaking Maryland state law in order to do this. And I'm not sure quite why that happens. I think it's sort of out of a general naivety of hers. She hasn't really done this before. She hasn't owned people before Douglas. The interesting thing about Sophia Old is that Douglas then uses the literacy skills that she gives to him to write about her change. And she becomes a really important character for Douglas where she goes through a metamorphosis, really, in narrative. She becomes a really monstrous character. And Douglas uses that to highlight, uses her change to highlight the dehumanising impact of slavery on those who enslave as well as those who are enslaved. So he turns those skills towards her and makes that her a focal point of his attention. So clearly he's not alone in being enslaved in Maryland. He's part of a very large community of enslaved black people in America at that time. What can you tell us about the black community in Maryland and Douglas's involvement? Yeah, great question. I suppose the best way to answer that is in two ways. In one way, slave owners 
at this point are doing everything in their power to ensure that there isn't a black community. And they try that in a very pronounced way through the separation of families. Again, Douglas has much to say about this. Children are routinely taken from their mothers before they're 12 months old. So there's an effort to atomise, I suppose, black individuals, to deny any sense of community. And we could explore that a little bit further. Douglas has his thinking on this subject very clearly. He understands the power of familial love and he understands the power of community and the strategic effort to keep black individuals separated as part of the whole system and the whole institution of slavery to really, I suppose, break children, especially, into that system. So that would be one answer. But of course, the alternative answer is that a black community does indeed develop. There's a beautiful vignette that Douglas gives us at the opening of the narrative where he talks about his mother. And this is like a really short extract, but it stayed with me for a long time when I first read narrative. It made a real impression on me because Douglas's mother is not really a fixture in his life. She's dead by the time he's seven. She's a great example in a way of how that community can't really exist because she's sold off to another plantation and Douglas is left behind. So they are kept apart. And, you know, history teaches us that that was very common. But actually, Douglas writes in this vignette about her that she walked through the night to try to see him. She was a field hand on a plantation about 12 miles away from Douglas. So she worked all day and at sundown would walk to visit him in his cabin, arriving in time to really soothe him to sleep as a child, as, as mothers do. And then she made the walk back to her field where she had to be by sunrise or she would have been you know, brutally punished if she missed that call to work. And he says she managed that about five times. Now, that endures in the narrative. So here's a woman who has no real presence in Douglas's life and yet she has a lasting presence in Douglas's life. So the community in Maryland is there and it's happening, but perhaps in unexpected ways. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So clearly, he became aware that there were opportunities to escape slavery. How did he do that? How did he escape slavery? And what were his first steps as a free man? There's lots of reasons why Douglas plots his escape. Again, in his autobiographies, he's noting that the dehumanising treatment that he receives and the other children receive. There's a horrible, often quoted passage where Douglas talks about eating from a trough with the other children, eating mush from a trough like so many pigs. So it's these sort of details that he gathers together and plans his escape. By the 3rd of September, 1838, he's managed that liberation. For a couple of reasons, he knows a free black woman, Anna Murray, who later becomes his wife. She's able to provide some financial assistance for that escape. And he also borrows a merchant's Siemens papers, which allow him to posture as a free black seaman. And he makes his move to New York. By the 4th of September, 1938, he arrives in New York. When you've been enslaved for a period of time, your first response presumably is that sense of liberation and joy at freedom. But of course, he makes the move from simply enjoying his freedom in New York to working for the abolitionist movement, promoting the rights of enslaved people and advocating changes in, in society and the law. So how does he go from having escaped using those merchant sailors' papers to freedom and then on to joining really very powerfully the abolitionist cause? Yes, yeah, so I guess your question is why doesn't he just sit back and relax <laughs> upon finding himself free? So there's a few important details to cover to answer that question. In 1838, he, of course, is not free. He's escaped. And his response to that escape is not one of joy. It's not one of satisfaction. It's not even relief. He actually writes about arriving in New York and having this crushing sense of anxiety. He says, again, in narrative that he feels insecure and deeply lonely And he's repeating this mantra to himself where he's saying, trust no man. And I found that, again, really striking. We don't get any sense of relief, but rather a heightened sense of fear and anxiety. So he's not really free and not able to feel that relief until his manumission is bought. His freedom isn't bought for Douglas until 1846, so some time later. And I love to tell this story because it happened just about... 20 minutes walk away from where I'm sitting now in a lovely turn of events. Douglas's freedom was bought for him here in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. 
really by the efforts of two Quaker women, Anna and Ellen Richardson, and they lived up at Summerhill Grove, which is just across from the Newcastle Central train station. If you're ever in Newcastle, you can uh, look out for uh, Summerhill Grove. The sisters, the Richardson sisters, bought Douglas's freedom by writing to his master, Thomas Auld, and asking to be able to raise funds and pay for that. And they sent him home to the US in 1847, a free man. Douglas happens to be here. He's on his British and Irish lecture tour. He stays with those Quaker women. And it all happens as a sort of surprise. But Newcastle played a big part in abolition then because he's bolstered by that freedom. And really his time as a lecturer and a orator and a campaigner for abolition really picks up when he returns to the US and he feels an obligation, I think, that comes with that freedom to push that cause further. Also, his experiences in Britain and Ireland were quite different from his experiences in the US, where he was treated much more like an equal. Not entirely, there's lots of racism that we could unpack around his experiences on this side of the Atlantic too, but he noticed a difference, I think. So he goes back with a sort of fire in his belly to do more for the abolitionist cause. Probably listeners might be a bit more familiar with abolitionist movements in the UK, the Quakers and Wilberforce. What was the situation in America at that time, in, in New York, where he was living and around that area? And how did he get involved in that initially after his freedom or after he escaped? So Douglas, when he marries Anna Murray, she's a really important figure in Douglas's life. And when they marry, they move to Bedford, Massachusetts, and they attend an African Methodist church there. He's asked to preach and there's a connection, I think, between his preaching and his lecturing that we don't need to join the dots too much to notice that. It's really through his preaching that he becomes noticed, I think, and he's hired by the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. So that society's underway and abolitionist campaigners are very active at that point. He's hired in 1841, but really he's this prominent ex-slave who's joining forces with predominantly white abolitionists. His job then in 1841 is fascinating because he becomes a salaried lecturer and he's on tour really in New England, for want of a better word, preaching about abolition. So he kind of aligns himself in the 1840s with prominent abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, for example, although he parts company with Garrison later. So he's at this point, he's lecturing, he's touring, talking about the abolitionist movement. What was his stance on how slavery should be tackled and how did he promote his ideas and how, how were they received? He's got to play quite a clever game, Douglas. He's insistent on nonviolence when he aligns himself with Garrison and other abolitionists in the 1840s. That's what he likes about Garrison. It's his nonviolent stance. His stance changed later in life. We find out that he actually is in conversation with John Brown to discuss the raid on Harper's Ferry. He backs out of that plan. Douglas kind of withdraws from that. But it shows us a change in his attitude to abolition, moving away from Garrison and, and I think having a, a hunger for action later on. You also asked me about how he was received that's really interesting in how Douglas deals with that reception. I think much like many early black writers, Douglas is received really as somewhat of a curiosity. 
and he pulls in audiences at first because they want to see him. They want to objectify him and look at him. And he knows this and he's very clear about it. On both sides of the Atlantic, he talks about being introduced as a piece of property, really, and having the audiences reassured that it could speak. So he knows that he really begins that career as a symbol of black intellectual capability, I think. That changes. Douglas doesn't stay a symbol for long. He's gathering crowds soon on the promise of his reputation for being this wonderful orator. And one of the reasons he's so good at that, I think, is his capacity for storytelling. And again, as a literary scholar, I love that. <laughs> Douglas was an avid reader. You know, those literacy skills that he picks up in his early life do not go to waste. He, he reads uh, voraciously. And one of his favourite authors is Charles Dickens. Probably his favourite author is Charles Dickens. And I really noticed the way he can tell a story in his writing, but also he can hold an audience captive in his talks. So that's how he reaches his audiences and he's received eventually, moving from a symbol of black intellectual capability to much more of a renowned orator and speaker that people want to hear. As you say, over the course of his speaking career, he spoke overseas, he spoke in the UK, but he was also a writer. As you say, his storytelling was very important. And you've mentioned that he's written two books. How did his writing career begin and progress? When was Narrative published and what impact did it have? So Narrative was published in 1845. It made a huge sensation on both sides of the Atlantic. And he follows that up with My Bondage and My Freedom in 1855. But in between those years, these speeches that he's giving also have huge impact. Douglas is reaching people in those ways, but he's also the author of newspapers. Those newspapers are really important for showcasing the work that's going on, for allowing writers to lend their support to the cause and for publishing and updating readers on what's happening with that movement. So during this time, as you said, he was still legally considered enslaved for the first several years of his life in New England, and he presumably, theoretically, was still at risk of capture. Did he help other enslaved people directly at that time? Yeah, again, we need some historical detail here, don't we? Because... He is at risk and he's also not at risk. And it's important to underscore that, I think, because of what happens next in US history. So Douglas, as I mentioned, has his manumission bought for him here in Newcastle upon Tyne and he goes home free in 1847. So that's just a few years before the introduction of the Fugitive Slave Act, which comes into law in 1850. So had Douglas been an escaped slave when that act was in place, you know, his anxiety levels would have been much higher than the ones he documents because that act, the introduction of that in 1850 made slavery a problem for everyone in the country, not just a southern problem. So those people living in the north were then legally obliged to return enslaved people who had escaped. But he sort of misses that because he's free by the time that act is introduced. But yes, indeed, he helps lots of people to their freedom. He helps through his campaigning work, as I've outlined, through his writing. He is really probably works himself eventually to death 
doing work for the cause, but he's also active politically in the Underground Railroad and he manages to assist people that way to freedom as well. But I think his biggest achievement really in terms of helping others to freedom is how he agitates for action through those newspapers. And of course, the abolitionist movement can't be seen as isolated from wider politics and other movements. Was he involved in wider politics and, for example, the suffrage movement? This is a controversial topic <laughs> because I think he was. In fact, you know, we have facts to support that. But those friends, his suffragist friends, sort of fall out with Douglas a little bit in the late 1860s because they don't think he's done enough. He was doing a lot, I think, given his own cultural moment. And yet it was seen that he wasn't doing quite enough because he really prioritised black manhood over female liberation as far as his friends in the suffrage movement were concerned. Having said that, he's the only African-American attendee at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. Seneca Falls was the first major feminist gathering of its kind. And being the only African-American attendee there, he showed his support to suffrage campaigners like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott. They become, Stanton especially, becomes a friend of Douglas's. So obviously by the 1850s, he was a, a fairly major voice, having published his first book and being heard on both sides of the Atlantic. What can you tell us about his later life and work and his efforts to affect social change? He does so much that it's almost very difficult for us to measure how much he does. Because he has such a celebrity, I suppose, he's a wonderful person to have on your team. He's doing work that we can't measure for anti-slavery and abolition because his voice carries so much weight on both sides of the Atlantic. And he uses that politically, you know, more than any other African-American figure, Douglas helped to end slavery. I think in particular by encouraging African-Americans to join the Union Army. So not only is he sort of responsible in part for the Civil War <laughs> in that all this work comes, you know, the work that he's doing creates the rumblings and the tensions in the 1840s and 50s that eventually become this sort of volcanic eruption known as the Civil War. But then he doesn't end there. He's encouraging African-Americans to fight for the Union Army. And indeed, he lobbied Lincoln to allow that to happen. As I'd said earlier, he's in talks with John Brown at one point. The raid on Harper's Ferry was really instrumental in the beginnings of the Civil War too. We think of that as the sort of starting point of that war. So, yeah, his wider work for that contributed to ending slavery is just massive. By the time of the Civil War in the 1860s, he had, as you say, a degree of celebrity. Did that give him influence with political figures? Yeah, I mean, just the very fact that he's able to lobby Lincoln to do that shows his influence. He's a big letter writer, so he networks in literary circles, and literary circles at the time often become political as well. So he's in touch with Harriet Beecher Stowe. He's telling audiences to read Dickens's American Notes. Charles Dickens publishes American Notes in 1842, where he outlines his experiences of the US, and it itself is this anti-slavery, has this anti-slavery chapter. So he's constantly networking, I think, with literary celebrities and with politicians to make this change occur. 
So Douglas has been working this way for several years. How and when did he die? I mean, he has a nice long life, but he works himself to death, really. And I also mentioned that his friends in the suffrage movement fall out with him a little bit for not doing enough. And yet, somewhat ironically, he dies on the 20th of February, 1895, and he's just come home from a suffrage meeting at the National Council of Women in Washington, D.C. And the exertions of that meeting kill him, I think. He suffers what we think was a stroke. And I think that's a really important reminder of his really vigorous support for female suffrage as he was campaigning for other causes, really literally until his final breath. So he had a relatively long life for that era and worked very hard over a a long number of years. What would you say was his greatest achievement? I mean, where to begin? In true Douglas style, I think we should trace it right back to the beginning, actually. And it has to be his ability to free himself through his literacy. That's I think that's an achievement that's very difficult for us in our privileged situations to imagine. Not only is this person able to learn to read and write, but he uses the pen, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword in Douglas's life, absolutely. And he's able to use the pen to not only free himself, but then to encourage others to join him at intersections across different modes of oppression. Power of Douglas's literacy is is huge, and that's his greatest achievement. And if we could identify one, what would you say was his biggest failing? I mean, yeah, who am I to say? Who am I to, to even attempt to answer this question? I'm going to bring us right up to date, I think. I was listening to an interview with Benjamin Zephaniah recently. Zephaniah recently, our poet, recently died. Radio 6 were having a show about him to mark his passing and they played this old interview with him and he was asked that question, do you think you're successful? And Benjamin Zephaniah answered, no, absolutely not. Now here we have this very successful poet answering that he feels unsuccessful and he accounts for that by saying he didn't reach people through his poetry in the way he hoped. You know, he looked he looked around him at our recent years and the racial division, I suppose climaxing with the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. And he said, no, my poetry hasn't done what it ought to do. It ought to be healing. And it hasn't done that. Now, that really caught my attention. It made me think of a Whitman quote that I know very well. Walt Whitman, we could barely measure his success. He couldn't have been more successful in his uh, writing life. And at the end of his life, he turned to his friend Horace Trubel. He says something like, I needed to reach the crowd, I needed to reach the people. He says, but it's too late now. And he's talking about his failure. And again, Whitman, very much like Zephaniah, really thought and really believed that poetry could heal a divided nation, could really do remarkable, almost medicinal work to the racial division of his time. So that's perhaps a long way of thinking back to Douglas. When you ask what's his kind of biggest failure, I suppose Douglas might answer this in the same way if he was asked. If he was here today, I think he would say, I can't have been successful because look at what's happening now. We've talked a lot about his work, his publications, his speaking, and this is something that's probably very hard to encapsulate. But if you could summarise What's his legacy today? Yeah, he has such an important legacy or legacies today. I'm 
really interested in literature of the 19th century, but, but I read literature beyond that period too. And I noticed Douglas in everything, I, maybe not everything, but in a lot of reading that comes later, I noticed Douglas's legacy there. Your listeners might know of that important black rights campaigner and thinker, W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois published The Souls of Black Folk, his essay collection in 1903. And in that, he coins this term double consciousness and Du Bois uses that term to talk about the psychological impact of racism in the early 20th century. When I read Du Bois I think back to Douglas's experience of alienation in New York that I talked to you about. You know when he finds himself in New York sort of notionally free as an escaped slave and he feels this terrible anxiety and this mantra is running through his head trust no man and Douglas really is talking about a sort of double consciousness there that Du Bois won't articulate until the next century. Your listeners probably, if they know any black writing, they might know Toni Morrison's work. Toni Morrison, I was reading one of her later novels recently, A Mercy, published in 2009. And in that novel, she has a black girl, Florence, being sort of examined by Presbyterian early settlers and Florence says swine look at me with more connection when they raise their heads from the trough and when I read that recently I thought oh there's Douglas again you know talking about eating from a trough like so many pigs and Morrison's just picked that straight from Douglas I'm sure she's thinking of Douglas there when she writes that so to answer your question what's Douglas's legacy well he paved the way I think for writers of colour some scholars think he takes up too much room you know he clips his other early black writers that we should think more about. Phyllis Wheatley's a good example of one, Moses Roper's another. But really, Douglas's legacy is that he paves the way for these writers of colour who come later. I think that's a good point to finish and to say thank you, Claire, for painting a very vivid picture of Frederick Douglass, one of the most important figures in American abolitionist history. Thank you, Paul. That was Claire Elliott. Associate Professor at Northumbria University and lecturer in 19th century literature. You can find more episodes from our Life of the Week series on your podcast feeds or on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to today's Life of the Week. Be sure to join us again next time to learn about another fascinating figure from the past. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.